Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norris Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. Now, getting back to the show, we've spent quite a bit of time on aggregation theory, which is this concept where a platform that has zero distribution and marginal costs, like say a Facebook or a Netflix, gain so much share of customer attention that they begin to aggregate and commoditize suppliers who previously had a direct relationship with their customers. So for example, if you think about the legacy media model, newspapers like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal had a direct relationship with their consumers. But thanks to the internet, they quickly found their legacy business models decaying as consumers started to get all of their news through gatekeeping social media platforms like Facebook. Now, fortunately, for the sake of competition, losing the power dynamic to an aggregator doesn't always have to be your fate. In fact, today's episode is a wonderful case study in how one can avoid being aggregated. Specifically, I pulled in Jim Vandehei and Roy Schwartz to talk through how you can build a direct relationship with consumers and differentiate in a way that allows you to circumvent a platform as powerful as Facebook. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Jim is the founder of Politico and recently founded Axios alongside Roy, who was the chief revenue officer at Politico and is now president at Axios. I myself am a daily consumer of Axios' news, which is by far my favorite media company thanks to its practice of a concept they call smart brevity, which emphasizes a new model that combines Twitter and The Economist in a way that fits well within modern consumption habits. So in today's podcast, Jim, Roy, and I discuss what exactly makes Axios special, and more importantly, what makes Axios a sustainable business, unlike many of the prior internet media startups that have fizzled out over the years. We also get to hear about their take on how Donald Trump has disrupted media, whether for good or bad, and also how the Axios team thinks about differentiating both to their news consumers as well as their advertising customers. So why don't we get started? Hey guys, how's it going? Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for taking some time today. So why don't we start with a little bit on your background, both in starting Politico and now Axios. Uh, Cool, this is Jim, I'll start. So my background was I was a journalist for my whole life from college until well into my 30s. I worked at various newspapers and sort of rose to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post covering the presidency. If you'd asked me in the early 2000s, I would have assumed I'd be a journalist writing books or whatever for the rest of my life, and then became an entrepreneur in 2006 when the media business started to see early signs that the media business might be going to shit and felt like, yeah, we have an idea. And at that time, the idea was, hey, you know, you have all these reporters, you have all these media companies, but nobody's actually taking advantage of the web. No one's actually taking advantage of the insatiable appetite of cable TV for political coverage. And contrary to what most people thought, we felt there actually wasn't enough political coverage, which seems insane now, but at the time seemed less insane. And we created a company called Politico. And at the time, at the early days, it was Mike Allen, myself, John Harris, uh, Fred Ryan, who's now the publisher and CEO of The Post. 
And that company ended up taking off like a rocket. I think we just hit the perfect formula at the perfect time. And as you know, so much of this stuff is timing. And within four months, we're on stage co-moderating a presidential debate with Politico as a banner standing next to MSNBC and then CNN for a different one. And used that time to basically learn how to be an entrepreneur, ultimately to learn how to be a CEO. And again, as you and your listeners would be pretty familiar with, most of the stuff you end up learning and running a business is by getting it wrong the first time. And so for the first three to four years, while Politico was a massive success publicly, it's kind of a shit show behind the scenes in terms of really trying to learn how to hire people, create a culture, scale a company, sustain greatness on a day-to-day basis without basically having everyone collapse because you're just gutting it out each and every day. Ultimately, we got pretty good at it. And early on, one of the things that we recognized is that people in media probably weren't the right solution for media companies, particularly in sales and technology. And that's how I met Roy, who was introduced by a common friend. I was very hungry to find somebody who could run sales for us that didn't, wasn't corrupted by sort of bad media habits. We met up for sushi and we fell in love. Right, Roy? <laughs> that's right. Well, thanks for doing this. So a little bit about me before I met Jim. I had completed my MBA. I was working for Gallup at the time, and I was a management consultant and was leading first the DC office and then went to California and you know handled big accounts uh, like Toyota, Starbucks, Hilton, and knew I wanted to move back to DC. And as Jim mentioned, through a friend, met with Jim, and this was year one of Politico, so it was still very much a print newspaper business. And the vision that he had was just something that I could see like this was going to be big, even though it was in this media business that at the time was sort of print-centric and needed a lot of work from a sales perspective. But jumped in and, you know, helped to build Politico, helped to add the subscription products and the events, and ultimately took it to Europe with our deal with Axel Springer. And then from there, you know, in terms of how we started to think about Axios, I'll let Jim talk about the editorial side, and I'll talk about the business side. Do you want to talk about the... Well, I mean, your podcast has a great name, right? Like pattern recognition. Like you're always trying to look at different variables. And when you're looking at new businesses, it's like, well, what problem needs to be solved? And do I have a high degree of confidence that I can solve it? And if I can solve it, can it... Do I have a high degree of confidence that it could be a profitable, scalable business. And for us, one of the things that we became obsessed with at Politico is just studying the consumer habits of really elite news readers, like people who really needed high-end information to do their jobs and make better decisions. And often these people were CEOs or they were leaders in government. And one of the things that we recognized sort of at the tail end of our Politico experience was, damn, the world is changing so much faster than the human mind can keep up with. And that the fundamental challenge for the professional class of news consumers is going to be you're going to have to know a lot more across more topics faster than ever if you really want to thrive. You can't just be a specialist in your own little area. You have to at least have an understanding of AI and robotics and science and politics and technology, China, all these big forces that were shaping the world. So we began a discussion of, okay, well, if that's the problem that needs to be solved, how do you solve it? And for us, like ultimate solution was what we, we refer to as smart brevity, that you needed to combine 
just talent, smarts, like people who have true expertise in tech deals, in China, in politics, in media, consumption habits, whatever it is, you needed the smarts with the brevity. You needed to bring exponentially more efficiency to the information consumption process. And so we said, well, if that's what the data is clearly showing us the consumer wants and needs, and in many ways was screaming for, how do you do it? And so when we think about media businesses, which, by the way, I think are some of the hardest businesses to start. If you look at the history of new media businesses over the last 15 years, there's not a great track record for most media companies. Most of them uh, either have like they rise quickly but then hit a wall or they rise quickly and they go to hell. And uh, more, unfortunately, are in that latter category. So we always are thinking about the business side of it. If I know I can hire Dan Primack or Sarah Fisher or Jonathan Swan – and I know I can get them to write in our format, like where Roy's brain really excels is, okay, then how do we turn that in to a durable, scalable business? Yeah. And on the format itself, what we found was really fascinating. 80% of people stop reading after the headline and the first sentence or two. And less than 5% of people will complete an item even after they've clicked on it. And so that format that Jim and Mike created editorially we basically took that concept and applied it also to advertising. Because I would say advertising was an even worse place. You know, you had banner ads that people were completely ignoring. There was ad blindness. It was right at, you know, at the time where programmatic was really taking off. So this is 2016, 2017. And all of a sudden, you've got ads following you around for anything that you looked at at any time. It was kind of getting maybe a little creepy. The other thing that publishers were doing was long-form content, right? They were doing branded content, creating a landing page. And the issue there is that that experience can take seven minutes on why X company is, you know, the best company on earth. And consumers weren't even reading a news article that they had clicked on, right? So what are the chances that they would, you know, be there for seven minutes consuming from beginning to end this experience? And so what we developed was a way to provide messaging that's very clear that it is a message from, but it follows the same format, a headline, an image, or an infographic, and then text provided in smart brevity that helps to convey the client's message as efficiently as possible, but in an audience-first way. So we never do anything that interrupts the reading experience. Our messages are between articles, they're not inside of articles, and the user's in control. But for the client, we are giving them the entire, like if you're on your mobile phone, the entire screen of your phone to be able to convey your message. And it's very powerful. The results of that are, you know, four or five X, any other type of advertising, the engagement level, the time spent is much, much better. Yeah, that really resonates with me as a consumer of all of your news myself, as when I try to describe Axios to my friends, I think of it as a combination of Twitter meets The Economist where you have that really high quality thought leadership with experts in the field, whether it's Jonathan Swan or Dan Primack. And then at the same time, it's all bite-sized and consumable, right? So I start pretty much every morning here on the West Coast with Dan's pro rata newsletter. And what Dan does and what all of your newsletters do is they focus on one or two key topics for the day, either in finance or across a broad range of topics that are required to hone in on pattern recognition. And at the same time, you've got the bite-sized news pieces that you can scroll through really quickly at the bottom. And so, Roy, I'm glad you mentioned the 
ads piece as well, because whenever I see an ad, whether it's from JP Morgan or Bank of America, it fits in, right? Where it's not disjoint from the rest of my reading experience. And it doesn't feel like my privacy is being invaded in a Facebook kind of way. <laughs> Absolutely. And oftentimes they have incredible research, incredible data and a story to share. It's just the way in which they've been trying to share it was interruptive. And so what we're providing is a great space for them to be able to share their insights, share their valuable information with people who are in the mode of consuming information and insight. And you can't overstate the value of simplicity in this era of chaos. The reason the ads are effective, and the reason that the content is so effective is that it's, in some ways, we're breaking it down into its simplest form. Tell me what's new. Tell me why it matters. That's how humans talk. It's how humans hear. It's how humans digest information. And people pick up on that, the, the reality of it, and just like the little cues, even in how we designed the site, how we designed the newsletters, like really obsessing about each pixel. Like, are we being super respectful of the end user's time because we're all paralyzed. There's no different. We did this listening tour where we talked to everybody at Apple, Snapchat, big companies, small companies, everybody. I don't care if you're the president of the United States or if you're the line worker at Ford Motor Company, like everybody feels paralyzed by information right now. There's too much hitting you. And so I think one of the reasons that Axios resonates and breaks through is that we we just make it easier for you. We give you the power to go deeper if you choose to go deeper. But if you're just going to read a couple of paragraphs, we're going to make it the best damn couple of paragraphs you can get. And I think what we're hinting at now is differentiation, right? Yep. So as a consumer, I am thoroughly inundated in content, right? I have too much quality content to consume and not enough time. So why don't we spell out what exactly Axios's differentiation is? And then let's parlay that into how do you do that at scale? Yeah, I think on the content side, the differentiation, it is that combination of like, yes, there's a lot of smart reporters, but we don't actually want smart generalists. We want people who have authentic expertise on the topic that they're covering because they have a built-in following, they have a built-in source network, and on day one, they deliver essential, actionable information. And so every person that we hire, they all are of the same mold, whether it's Amy Harder doing energy or Sarah Fisher doing media or Kim Hart, we're about to launch a sort of smart cities coverage uh, tomorrow. They all have expertise in built-in followings. And then they've all bought into the brevity part of it, that we're always going to start with what's new and why does it matter, and then empower you, the reader, to go deeper. And those two together are a differentiator, which I think has surprised some people because there are so many media companies out there. And because you already have Twitter and you have so much social media, I think a lot of people thought, well, there's nothing you can really do to break through in terms of like format and voice. And I think that we're, we're getting there. I think we've, we've, been, we've been able to figure out a formula that does resonate, especially with a professional class, like people who just need information to make better decisions to both live their life and do their job. Yep, that makes sense. And then one of my favorite questions to think about as a consumer myself, and then also thinking about media broadly is how the age of Trump has affected how we consume news. So curious, given you guys are on the front lines, how have you seen the paradigm shift, if at all, within media? I mean, we could do a 10-hour podcast on this topic alone. I have very mixed feelings about it, to be honest. On the one hand, Trump has been fantastic for business. I'd argue that other than the New York Times, we're probably uh, as wired, if not more wired, than any publication into the Trump White House. We break lots of news. Swan's a superstar journalist and is a real deal. 
And so it's helped us in terms of getting, for people who care about Trump, care about politics, get our brand recognition high and our credibility high quickly. And so on the one hand, yes, like obviously there was this massive Trump bump for everybody. And I say the plus side is that you have more people than ever before interested in politics and policy and paying attention to it more closely and more emotionally than ever before. The downside of that is, is I think we've gone way past the tipping point. And I would say we're in a very dangerous space as a country right now in that the average person is consuming way too much politics. If you step back and just think about the world, think about your investments, think about what you do on your daily basis when you're not doing the podcast, that big topics like politics is important, but is it really that much more important than AI, than robotics, than China, than automation, than climate change? the nuclear armed nations? Like, no, it's not. And so people are now have an unhealthy portion of their consumption diet dedicated to politics. And so like maybe 15% of our content is politics, yet it probably drives 70% of the traffic. And like what we desperately want and what I think the country desperately needs is people need to be paying attention to other things, especially AI and automation. If you think about the things that are going to profoundly change this country, maybe so profoundly that will make be the determination, will determine whether or not like we continue to be the world's great superpower or not, is going to be our ability to adjust at scale quickly to the sort of all the manifestations of change that will come from automation and AI, machine learning, which will hit us quicker than the changes of the advent of the internet hitting all these businesses and all these aspects of our life. And so our hope is, is to, by introducing people to all these other topics, whether it's our future newsletter or automation or smart cities, that you can get people to get their diet back to like a healthy food pyramid, right? That politics still has its little place, but it's not the whole damn pyramid. And I really like how you see it as just one piece of the puzzle, where if I only read politics and nothing else as an investor, I'd probably be a pretty myopic and underperforming investor. So one question I actually have as an investor is in thinking about the relationship and the tensions specifically between social media and media companies, where I think in era one of social media, most of your legacy media businesses got really burned by Facebook as they found themselves getting aggregated and commoditized by the large social media platforms. And I think we're still seeing the fallout of that today, even with the death of the newspaper. So how do you guys think about building a sustainable business alongside social media in a way that lives in harmony with a Facebook or Twitter, as opposed to being a victim of a gatekeeper? We have a a fairly unique business because it's not traffic reliant. So even, you know, when we were talking about the Trump bump, you know, so much of our business is really around the deeply engaged reader. And those are people that subscribe to our newsletters on all these different topics. They're people that come to the site every single day. They're not the people who generally click in from social media. I think uh, larger media organizations have become reliant on that because programmatic advertising revenue, banner advertising, they are absolutely reliant on the traffic that all of those clicks drive. We use it more like a product sales funnel. We think of it as how do we introduce people to Axios as a new brand? How do we introduce people to Axios as a new format? But we're not trying to or need to monetize every click into the site. It's much more important to us 
that you sign up for a newsletter or you listen to the podcast or you watch the HBO show, that's more important to us ultimately because we're trying to establish a long-term relationship, an engaging relationship with our audience. And what's really interesting about our business model is that's where, from a monetization standpoint, we do best. And so, you know, our newsletters where people are reading it every single day, day in, day out, that's where a client can get a relationship with our audience, right? They can advertise for an entire week. They can tell a more robust story. It's not in the person clicking in from social media. In terms of how we think about our relationship with social media, we will put our content, we put it on Apple News, we put it on Facebook, we put it on Twitter. We really see it as a way to market Axios, to introduce it to people, or to make it easily accessible. A lot of people tell me they'll click in from something, but then they'll spend you know hours on our site reading content that's relevant. But they didn't even, you know, they didn't recognize the fact that they went from Twitter to Axios and now suddenly they're reading a lot of Axios content. And that's really the way we think about it is more of the way to get into the product. And the other thing is like there's so many dumb things that the media collectively did over the last 15 years. And one of the dumbest is to like build business models based on the benevolence of another company. Right. I think about you as an investor. Would you invest in me? If I'm pitching you a restaurant, I'm going to create a steakhouse and my entire strategy is hinged to whether or not the local grocery market will send me potential customers. Like you would laugh me out of the room. In many ways, that's kind of what the media did, right? They said, oh, yeah, like, like Facebook will push people to us. We'll figure out a way to monetize it, or we'll figure out a way to do a partnership with another company that has a fiduciary responsibility to drive value for itself. It has no obligation to make money for you. And so the way we look at the platforms, like we're in some ways agnostic. They're great marketing vehicles, but we're not at all dependent on them. And if we ever do become dependent on them, I would say we're screwed. Yeah, I totally get that. I think there's a ton of platform risk is how we would describe it, right? It's more than just supplier risk. It's key platform risk. And how we saw these social media platforms more or less aggregate and commoditize the legacy media players was pretty shocking. And when I think about my own experience subscribing and learning about the Axios brand and starting to consume more content, what I really love is this direct relationship that you have with right. with readers, right? And it's those newsletters, for me at least, right? Where every single day I wake up and I start my job, like I said before, reading pro rata. I mean, that's how I know what exactly is happening in private equity, what's happening in finance. And there's no need to have the best retweet or the best social media post, right? Or, or a great Instagram photo. For me... I followed those accounts after I'd already built a direct relationship with you guys. So you've more or less circumvented that platform risk. And instead, you've built this healthy ecosystem where your social media, specifically me following you guys on Twitter, supplements my consumption that's already direct. That's right. No, that's exactly what we find. We now have 700,000 subscribers to our newsletters. And that experience that you described when we do surveys and when we get, you know, reader feedback, that's exactly it. You know, they've been looking for something. They've been trying to get the news and information through various different sources. And when they come across Axios and the smart brevity format, remember, it's not just the smart brevity within each item. It's also the hierarchy of those items. It's also the way in which we make it simple for you. We push that email out to you, you know, at 6 a.m. for the most part. And so it's there the moment you wake up. It gives you your top 10 items for the day. You can add additional newsletters on the industries that you're interested in. And so very quickly, you can be the smartest person in the room 
based on you know a few minutes of reading. And now at the top of our newsletters, we even put in the number of words and the amount of time that you're spending. And the average time is five minutes. So you know you can find five minutes to get smarter on on what you need to do your job. And I think that's a good segue into Axios's business model. So could you talk more about the relationship you have with advertisers and how that leads to a sustainable business model? Yeah, absolutely. So there are many companies now who understand that they need to share you know, what it is that they do and why they do it, their corporate social responsibility message that's not just aimed at influencers. It's not just aimed at people on Capitol Hill or the mayors or the governors. It's also aimed at their own employees or potential employees. And so they really think of it as as if they're running for office, right? They're like a candidate and they have different constituents that they have to reach. And they have to explain in a very simple way what it is that they do that's really great and what it is that they do that's good in the world, that's beyond just profit. And we help companies think about how to convey that in smart brevity. We help shape their message. We look at content, research, and data that they have and find what we think will resonate with our audience. We help them create that smart brevity. We then help place it based on the audience they're trying to reach in different newsletters or on the website or in videos that we create. We also do events in all of those different areas in order to provide for them the greatest visibility for their message with the audience that they're trying to reach. And so the business model right now is set up where we really have those four lines that I mentioned. You've got the website itself where we have the smart brevity unit. Uh, that Again, it's not a banner. It's not long-form content. It's what we call short-form native, and that's on the site. That same ad unit is on the newsletters, and we now have 20 different newsletters with the launch of Cities tomorrow, and each one sort of targets a different niche. We have videos that we create that are all in smart brevity. And then we have events that we produce. And even when we think about events, we have our smart brevity format for events. So events, you know, it's not a typical 45-minute panel discussion with five or six people shouting over each other. We do one-on-one interviews that last, you know, 12 to 15 minutes, and we do three of them in a row. And that allows us to get better guests. And so it's a better experience for the audience. It's a better experience for the clients who help underwrite um, the editorial content. And then in terms of that's the core of the revenue business right now, but we also have an HBO show, which is in its second season, which turned out to be a nice, I mean, awesome, I think, show, awesome collaboration, but also nice revenue generator for us. And hopefully late this year, early next year, we'll roll out a high-end subscription-like uh, product. We've always been huge, huge, huge believers that to be a successful, durable, scalable media company, you have to have something beyond ads. Yep. That recurring at some revenue. point, you're going you're to hit us in. you got to have recurring revenue. I remember at Politico, we did it with Politico Pro, which was basically selling very niche coverage to basically policy and political professionals. Ended up being a great business, you know, 90, 95% retention rate, 30% annual growth, upsell using the 20, 25% range. And I think even to this day, continues to grow at about a 20, 25% annual clip. And so, like, those are great businesses. And you as an investor, I know, I appreciate sort of the value of the side of a business. And to be honest, like, if you're just doing an ad-based media company, that's tough. Like, we are able to pull it off because we have this, like, sort of elite niche. But the reason most of these media companies don't work is that that's a hard play if you're just solely reliant on ads, particularly if you're playing the scale game. And so I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of investors 
get nervous about just pure play scale sort of conventional media companies. We see Axios as being something much different, right? We see the future of this really being like we're on to something in terms of like how people want to consume and disseminate information. And there's lots of ways uh, to utilize that to help get better information in the hands of people who are making decisions. And so that's really kind of what drives the company now and will drive us going forward. (laughs) You answered the next question that I was formulating in my head, which was, around just how difficult running a media business can be because consumers are so fickle and ad dollars are so cyclical. So why don't we submit what you were alluding to before, which was what were the specific pushbacks that investors had when you guys were out fundraising? It would be that, right? It would be like you're a media company. Again, I don't. it's a little hard to extrapolate from us because we had done a successful media company that people sort of hold up as like, ah, oh, here's an example of something that does work. So we had street cred that, let's say, an investor or an entrepreneur who hadn't done a previous company might not have. So we probably met less resistance. But the resistance that we did meet would be like, listen, I'm a venture fund. I want to get a 10x return in X number of years. And media to us, especially if it's advertising based, doesn't seem like it gives us the highest probability of getting that return. To which Roy and I would say, and probably made us not the best salespeople when we go to VCs, is like, yeah, if that's all you're thinking about, us as just an ad-based media company, like then their logic is probably right. But what you have to understand is that we think about it much differently than other media entrepreneurs think about it, because we understand you have to have that SaaS side, that reoccurring revenue side of a business, which I think does give you the same value that a SaaS-based company would have, because you have the same reliability on that type of revenue. Yeah, the other thing I would say is that we are very different than other ad-based businesses, right? The brand advertising, the corporate social responsibility advertising is a lot less volatile than your consumer advertising. There is an ongoing need, and I would say that need is dynamically and increasing almost exponentially because so many companies now and so many CEOs are under the pressure of explaining what it is that they think about social issues. Their employees care about it. They really have to talk about those things. And they have to define their brand before other people define it for them. And you can see it in, you know, when a situation comes up and, you know, Starbucks has to deal with something in their stores, they have built up brand credibility because they have spent years talking about ethical sourcing, talking about healthcare for their employees. There is a perception in everyone's mind about what they care about. And it was defined in many ways by them and the way in which they built their corporate social responsibility branding. If you don't do that, then it is defined for you. And so that need, I would say, is increasing exponentially. So even on the advertising side, I don't get worried about what's happened to some of the other people in the media business because I feel like, one, I see exponential growth on our end. Every meeting that I have tells me that we've really only scratched the surface there in terms of the need on the advertising side. And then beyond that, what Jim was saying is the business and the brand that you build gives you a lot of additional possibilities. So, you know, often people will ask us, well, why don't you put up a paywall? You could probably right now get people to pay for your newsletters. And we absolutely could. I hear that every single day. But right now, we want to make sure that our brand 
is well known. I want to make sure that every smart professional that should be reading Axios has at least tried Axios. And you can really only do that if you're free. And so as we think about the next phase, the subscription phase, you want to make sure that you've built it on a large enough brand so it's recognized and people know what you stand for. And then when you start to charge for content, people will be happy to pay for it because they know what to expect based on the content they've already consumed. And that that content would be additive. That's right. I I can't see a day where we would ever just slap up a paywall. I don't think the economics are wise for us and also in terms of our ambitions to reach as many people, as Roy said, as humanly possible. It's a deterrent. There's very few examples of consumer-based news companies getting low-dollar subscription rates that are successful. You Wall Street Journal, which is a write-off for a business expense and also a great paper for business coverage. The New York Times, which just has like, you know, 100 plus years of credibility and a readership that's been addicted since childhood. Outside of that, I guess the Post is doing pretty well right now, but mainly I think a lot of that growth is in is overseas. There aren't too many examples of consumer-based subscription models working at scale. And so we're not huge fans of that. And I'm a really big fan of the differentiation you guys are building into not just your content, but also your advertisements, especially around corporate social responsibility. Because when I joined Goldman, we'd often hear stories about how the firm was blindsided by the mass market pushback on the firm during the Great Recession, Yep. especially after that Rolling Stones article calling Goldman the vampire squid. And up until that point, I think Goldman had never once advertised to the general public. So it didn't have that same brand equity that's needed for a resilient public image, yep. right? So I totally see the value there. But at the same time, when I think about conventional advertising, especially digital and programmatic ads on Google or Facebook, I think one of the benefits of a cost per click model is that you can directly tie, let's say, one shirt sale to the number of clicks on a search ad, and you can therefore measure your ROI as an ad buyer. Whereas with CSR and just broader brand building in general, I think mimicking what Starbucks did with its brand is all very qualitative and difficult to measure. So as you think about telling the story to your advertisers and your prospective customers, how do you lay out and quantify the impact in a way that's similar to a programmatic ad? So we will quantify it in terms of brand lift studies, but I would say even those to your point are not an exact science. Where you really see it is when they're out and they're talking to other people and they start to hear parroted back to them what they stand for. I mean, the fact that you just off the cuff knew how to name three of our advertisers, right? Like you named JPMC, you named Bank of America right off the cuff. And that's the experience I've had. Even with people, you know, I remember I had one investor who said, oh, I don't even think I read your ads. And I said, well, I bet you do. And he said, no, I, I don't think I can name a single advertiser. And I said, well, why don't you think about it for a second and, and tell us if you can. And there were other people in the room, and they were sort of shaking their heads. And he said, okay, you're right. I can name one. And I was like, I, I bet you can name another one. I mean, so this game sort of went on. And in, in the end, he realized that not only could he name several of our advertisers, but he could actually remember their messaging. So I actually challenged him in terms of not only do I think you remember that ad, but I bet you remember what it was for. And the fact that an influencer, this was a partner at a major VC firm, the fact that that partner could, you know, recite three, four, five different advertisers and their messaging, even though he didn't think he was absorbing it, I think speaks to 
the power of a good and smart headline, a good and smart image, and that that company is trying, right, that they are working on and building that brand. So if you're out there and you are not de- actively defining your brand, you are just hoping and praying and rolling the dice that someone doesn't do it for you or that some issue doesn't happen or, you know, God forbid some accident, you know, takes place. And all of a sudden, the only narrative that's out there is one of negativity. And so that's why that brand building, that that CSR work is so important for clients. And as you reflect on your Politico days, which you had mentioned was a total startup in the sense that from the outside, the ship is growing rapidly, but on the inside, everything is going haywire, where it feels like you're building the plane mid-flight. What were some lessons learned at Politico that you're now applying at Axios? I think almost everything we learned that we do today well, we learned probably in the beginning from not doing that well at Politico. And like a big one was like I was a journalist, so like I was pretty cynical and, and particularly about culture and like all these culture books and all this focus on culture, whereas now that's like 60 percent of my job. That's all I think about is culture. How do you hire killers with humility? How do you have real transparency? How do you force real candor? How do you get people like rewarded who are awesome and move on from people who are struggling or aren't, might not be the right fit for your company? And what we realized there is, like, I I go back to, like, the first year of Politico versus first year of Axios. First 50 people we hired at Politico, I'd never hired anyone before, nor had John Harris. Of the 50, we probably got 70% wrong. They just weren't the right person at the right time for the right company. And so you've got, you know, if you have 20 right and you're 20 right, then end up carrying a huge load plus trying to pick up the load for the other 30 Whereas here, I think we got 95% right. So you're cooking with grease. And so we've been able to do, I'd say like every three months, we're able to do what probably a startup who hadn't gone through what we went through might take them a year or two to do. And so that was a big pattern. And then just understanding that it's almost like chemistry running a media company. You have to have just the right amount of technology, just the right amount of product, just the right amount of editorial, just the right amount of sales, and then sprinkle in the right executive leadership and voila, like you can create something pretty cool. And one of the things that we recognized at Politico that it was sort of exhausting that we were always sort of playing catch up. Like we never had an executive team big enough to sustain our ambitions and grow. So you end up spending a lot of time like fixing stuff or straining to get something done. So one of the things we did here is we basically on day one created an executive team big enough to run, say, 200 to 250 employees, which from the outside might seem like a weird bet to make as a startup. But we knew that the core model was going to be right and that if we could stay ahead of it, we could just grow a lot faster with less drama. And so that was being able to recognize a bad pattern from the past that we're able to correct here. And then just really surround yourself with people you want to work with and live with. We have like, like we just did our employee survey, 93, 94% of people said they'd strongly recommend working here. We have an awesome DNI initiative. Like we're just, it's a fun place to work. We've all had some success in our lives. Like I don't want to work around people I consider a drag or a dope or not good people. And so we've got a whole house full of people who share our values and really, really, really believe in the mission. Like you shake anybody here out of bed and they'll tell you, I am here to help people get smarter faster so they can make better decisions and change the world. Like people are on fire for that. And so that's a lot 
of learning, I think, mm-hmm. from a 10-year run. Yeah. I love that mission too. And I think I could get out of bed for that as well. So the next set of questions all revolves around the title of the podcast, which is pattern recognition. So what are some consistent patterns you guys see across successful media organizations? I mean, what Jim mentioned earlier, I think if you're going to focus on subscriptions, focus on businesses, I think getting people to write a $10,000 check, you need a lot fewer people to write that check to make the same amount of money as people writing a $10 check. And I think providing content that's valuable for people doing their job, that way it's reoccurring revenue. You know, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. They need it to do their job. You're making them more efficient. So, you know, I would obsess about that. I think in terms of advertising, it's what we said earlier, don't rely on platforms. Try and think of new and innovative ways to convey your client's message. And the less reliant you are on other people or other ways to get people to come to see your content or see your client's content, the better off you're going to be. It seems like something that'll be good because there's so much traffic there and there's so many people there, but the margins start to go down exponentially as you go into that type of scale game. I'd step back a little bit on that answer to say, like, I don't know that media companies are that different from any other company. Like, do you fundamentally have a really good idea? Are you really meeting a market need? So the the media companies that are successful, I think, are meeting a very distinct market need, that they have a team of people with clarity of purpose in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. And then, like, I don't know what the right term is, but, like, you need, like, a couple healthy psychotics, uh, in the mix, right? Like, <laughs> like people who are just going to do what it takes to get it done. We call done. It resilience. Like you know that from investing in companies. Resilience. <laughs> but in that resilience is some kind of, lies some kind of psychosis. But you need that. You need people who are just going to get it done. And we're lucky we've got a huge group of those. But I think if you have that, that's why I think niche media companies in general, if you look over the last 15 years, are more successful than the broad-based media companies. Right, because they're serving a very distinct need. Take like the information, like Jessica Lesson, like was at the journal, had real expertise, saw a very specific need, and stayed very focused just on meeting that specific need. And so companies like that, because of that clarity of focus and because of that built in expertise, I think tend to do better and probably will have a a longer life cycle than a more generic type company. And that's not to say, like, if you look at Vox and BuzzFeed and others, like, they have had a lot of success. Maybe they're not growing at 40%, 50% that they were in the early days, but they're still 100 200 $300 million a year businesses that are at or near profitability, that have good technology, that have nice user base, that if run right, like, can be very powerful, very profitable, very durable media companies. It's the other ones. It's what I get back to, the ones that really hitched themselves just to the, the benevolence of a social platform or sort of got into it and didn't really have an editorial theory of the case that was harnessed to a realistic business, I think that struggled. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at some of the larger media startups today, like a Vox or a BuzzFeed, they've struggled to figure out how to grow after a certain scale. And I think Part of that is just the lack of differentiation of ads in contrast to how you guys are thinking about not only differentiated content, but also differentiated ads. So another question I wanted to ask you guys on a more personal level is, are there any mental models or patterns you use in your own decision making? I don't, I don't know if I would have like a specific mental model, but going to like the title of your thing, like a pattern recognition. So when I look back, I only realize this in retrospect. 
when I was a journalist, I was a good journalist. And the thing I was actually really good at is trend stories, which the Wall Street Journal really taught me to do, which is basically find patterns of things that are happening in politics or the world to be able to put a specific idea into a larger context. And it really started to program my mind to kind of think in terms of pattern recognition, which then gives you a higher probability of being able to predict future action. And actually, once your mind starts doing it, it's not like you're, you can't see the future, but you could be pretty accurate on predicting the future. Well, it turns out when you're running a company or starting a company, it's all pattern recognition, right? It's taking in these variables of the chemistry of your team, the variables of a market, the variables of the history of that market so that you can have an idea of where it might be 6 to 12 months from now so you can always stay one step ahead of other people who might be stuck in today. And so I think now by habit, our success, and Roy and I get up most mornings by 4.15, we're on the phone debating something or getting excited about some idea, but almost all those ideas are now group pattern recognition, being able to understand that Roy might understand this part of the pattern better than I can, and I might understand that part, or Mike might understand this, or Kayla, or whoever would have ideas that fit into a larger pattern. And I don't think most people think that way. I think like one of the great things about, look what you do, right? Like you're looking at patterns all the time. You're trying to figure out what is the right investment based on these variables. It's like your thing about, well, if someone's doing CSR advertising, you can't really measure it. Well, you can't and you can. Can you really measure your fact pattern recognition when investing in a business? You probably can't on that specific one, but over time you either have a better hit rate than others or you don't. And you probably be out of business if you don't, right? So there is something to it, training your mind to be able to be like a have a good BS detector, to have a good pattern recognition detector, to have empathy. So you can be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person you might be doing a deal with or the person you're trying to deal with internally. And so I think both of our minds work that way, which is remarkable because both Roy and I, for talking 20 times a day now for going on a decade, I don't think we never disagree. I don't think we've ever had a bit. We've never had a fight. I don't think we've ever raised our voices at each other once. Like we'll have vigorous debates and I'm usually right and he's wrong, but <laughs> that's what he likes to tell himself. That's great. That's really valuable. So then last question for you guys here around content, right? I'm always trying to find the best content. So any books, shows, movies recently that you guys have consumed that have changed your perspective and why? You know, I grew up in England, therefore the strange accent. And one of my favorite people and also uh, favorite books is Richard Branson and Losing My Virginity. And it's a book that I go back to several times because I love the entrepreneurial journey that's in it. I love how clearly and candidly he talks about the failures as well as the success that he's had. And so I, I love that book. I think it's something I can reread several times. I'll give you a, a good business hack. The podcast are a gift from God for getting competitive intelligence from the companies in your space. Like, so I'm obsessed with like Digiday or Recode Media like anything where people like CMOs, CEOs go on, there's something about the podcast where people say things they would never say in print or won't see on TV. So it's not that it's changed my life, but it definitely has changed my consumption patterns because I find it to be the best way to get visibility into the real numbers and what's really happening 
at companies because so much of the coverage of media is make-believe. Most of the media reporters don't understand how media works, and they certainly don't understand how business works. And so I love to hear from the practitioners. I, I love also just to hear from the war stories of other entrepreneurs, right? Like just to hear like what worked for them, what didn't work for them, and paying attention again to the patterns of things that you might then be able to apply to your own life or your own company. Yeah, I love that. I use podcasts to study up for meetings all the time. So I think you leaked our secret there. <laughs> it's a good one. The Digiday podcast is great for that. Like all these people like cough up their numbers. They would never say it to like the Wall Street Journal or uh, Axios reporter, but for some reason they'll cough it up. And then if you listen, if it's an hour, you can put together all the stuff that they aren't thinking about that they leak out and you can figure out their whole financial statement. <laughs> well, guys, I think that wraps up about all the time we have here today. So thank you all for joining the show there and we'll talk soon. Well, thank you. And thank uh, you. really appreciate being on your podcast and uh, appreciate that you're a reader. Thank all you. Right. Bye-bye. Once again, a big thank you to Jim and Roy for joining us today. If you're looking for a better way to stay informed and intelligent, I highly recommend you check out the Axios newsletters, which cover specific topics ranging from tech to finance to smart cities and energy. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which includes our female founder series with Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girlboss, as well as Leah Busk from TaskRabbit. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.